Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts once again, chapter 5. We have a short passage before us, a, a bridge passage of sorts. It's also on the insert with a few questions that we'll seek to get preliminary answers to. These are exhaustive topics, um, what uh, the apostles did, who they were, the office of apostle, um, how their actions relate to today in the church, and and those kinds of questions. Many more, uh, there's so many different possible other questions that can come, but we're sticking with what we see right here in the text and trying to answer some of these questions because it'll help us as we walk through the book of Acts to have some frame of reference coming um, from Luke himself as he describes um, the actions of those who are called the apostles here. And we, have, we use the term often when we think of uh, the apostles' creed and the faith or the apostolic faith. So it's important to answer some of those questions. The passage is short, though, and it links two sections. There's the first persecution of the church that happens after Peter and John do the miracle, healing the man who had been paralyzed his whole life. He was over 40. And then from that sign of healing, they preach the gospel. That's the, that's the pattern that Jesus set up where he would do a sign and then he would preach a message. And the apostles do the same thing. In fact, the prophets did that too in the Old Testament. Um, their signs verified their office or their role, and it has a purpose. And the purpose for the apostles is to establish the church with the clarity of God's will, his word. And so God gives them this special capability of doing these signs and these wonders. Now, what's so important about it in its immediate context is the people, the Christians, were starting to come under persecution. So they had to have God's sure word. They had to know his word was true. Um, we see one persecution in uh, the earlier chapters, and now chapter 5, we have these linking verses that tell us what the apostles were doing, the impact it was having, and then immediately, Lord willing, next week we'll get into the passage where another heightened level of persecution comes upon Christians. So being sure of the apostolic word, which is the word of God for us, that's a bit of a preview of what unfolds here, that gives us the ability to stand up under persecution that may come when we know God's will as it's confirmed for us in his word. Here now as I read verse 12 to 16 of Acts chapter 5, this is God's inspired and inerrant and authoritative word. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried, carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed." Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, your supernatural hand is needed, and we are so assured to see how it has been upon the church, to see how you work to establish your church in those early foundational days gives us great confidence that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Lord Jesus, you are the great head of the church, and we look to you for salvation and for instruction. Please guide us by your Holy Spirit as we read and seek understanding of your Holy Word. Give us a deepened confidence in your revealed will as we have it in the Bible. 
Thank you for this book, the book of Acts. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Some years ago, over 25 years ago, because it was before Sherry and I got married, um, I visited the church of my supervisor. I worked part-time for a division in maintenance at our college, and my direct supervisor kept inviting me to his church. His church was uh, an African-American church. I say that because um, it's in the inner city, and when I got there, Sherry and I were the only two Caucasians there. And this is a a big church, the Old Landmark Church. You can look it up in Chicago. Old Landmark Church is part of the Church of God and Christ and Holiness Movement. A lot of theological implications there, but I love my supervisor. I love a lot of the people there as well. A few of the members of the church worked at the school, so I had good interaction with, with them. I went to church a few times before I went with Sherry. I took her early on in our dating relationship, and it was quite a shocker for her growing up in a Mennonite church to see the Church of God in Christ and Holiness Church. They're very different. Um, the choir in this church was probably 150 people, um, and they were very interactive. They didn't just have a song that they sang to begin the service to get our minds focused on worship. They did that, but then when the preacher preached, and there was a, a, a set of chairs with 10 preachers at least um, that would get up one after another and preach, and during the time, if the choir liked what the preacher was saying, the choir would start singing. And they would keep singing until they decided not to, and then the preacher would preach some more. Uh, uh, choir breaks, I guess is what you'd call them in the middle. And they had the Hammond organ, you know, that the wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah sounding kind of organ. And it would, if the organist liked what the preacher was preaching, the organ would hit even stronger um, to accent whatever point he was making. Um, the people were sweet. The fellowship was sweet. They were welcoming and intense people in worship. Uh, it was, a, it was an eye-opener for me to see other brothers and sisters in Christ in a, different, in a different worship setting and cultural setting, too. Now, there are obvious differences I had, pretty big differences with some of the theology that was being uh, preached, but I say it with respect. Um, I just disagreed with the holiness idea is that Christians, once they trust Christ, they can attain a certain level of holiness in uh, a high level, even perfectionism, some strands of that theology teaches. Now, on the street level, this is a church in a tough neighborhood, people trying to make it week to week. The preacher um, was very much a communal leader, and he got up and he would preach, usually say a verse from the, the scripture, but then most of the sermon would be how the people in the church, the members of the church, need to look different from the world. And he would just go down, I mean, every possible point of in, intimate nosiness you can imagine a preacher pointing out. I mean, he'd point people out that were in the church, they were dressed in a way they didn't think they should be dressed, and he would point it out. And I remember Sherry and I were kind of freaked out for the first two hours of the service because it starts at nine, it goes to noon, then they have another, they have a lunch break and then they come back for more. And we were just kind of subdued, not knowing exactly what to do. And he even said something like, and I see some of you just sitting there like lumps on the log. And that would have been us. We were just there. We didn't know what to do. Um, And so I gathered this whole experience. I started thinking about and analyzing it. And the thing I noticed that struck me is something, even though I grew up Roman Catholic in a very high liturgical church, there was something similar in the way they viewed God's word or revelation. And let me explain. The man was not just pastor so-and-so or bishop so-and-so. They had a system of bishops in their church. He was called the Apostle R.L. Mitchell. You can look him up. Um, He died a few years ago at 93 years old, 58 years. He was a pastor of that church, the Apostle R.L. Mitchell. And only a handful of ministers in that denomination reach apostleship according to their tradition. I remember asking my friend, now what do you mean by apostle? Because apostle simply means sent one. In their um, apostle could be applied in very, you can call a missionary or a church planner an apostle. Um, That's not the same as the capital A office of apostle we read in the New Testament. We think of as the apostles. But no, as my friend described it to me, no, they, he thought 
they thought that he, he was like the apostles in the New Testament in that he had a special ability to interpret God's will that other people didn't have, and it was outside of just the Word of God. They would say it wasn't opposed to the Word of God, but it was a revelation or a revealing he could get from God that he could then pass to the people. And hence, and he's, he's just reached a certain level of spiritual maturity that they called him the apostle for that reason. So they really did believe in some level of revelation that was special that could come to him and he could share it with the people of God. So naturally, you have the Bible, but you're also, what are you going to do? You're naturally going to wait for the apostle to give you some further insight about God's will or God's will. And I thought to myself, as, as strange as that seemed to me, I'm a Bible college dude and I'm really trying to get my categories. That's what we do. And there's things you can't always categorize. Let's just be honest about that. But this, I, I seem to have a, a picture I thought was more distinct in the New Testament. But then I thought about my upbringing as a Roman Catholic. Some of you have grown up in, in the Roman Catholic Church, too. There, they, their whole idea of the papacy is built on the idea of a continuing succession of the apostles. The idea that Peter was, and they take this text as part of their evidence, that Peter, uh, as an apostle, had special revelatory abilities which we recognize that in the New Testament. But then they say that that office perpetuates generation to generation, and the Pope is the picture of that perpetuation. So he is like an apostle living today from the New Testament era. He can receive a word from God or speak the word of God. So you have the Bible, but then you also have the bishop or the Pope or the apostle, the representative, Peter, who is an apostle. You see how the connect goes. So that's why they don't just say it's only the Bible is the word of God. It's the Bible, the traditions of the church, and the Pope. Well, there again, you have the Pope then making his declarations, and people practically, at least my experience was, you didn't read a lot of the Bible because you basically were told to depend on what the living apostle said, who's the Pope. So really, you have two very different traditions but you have a similar view of revelation in that it's ongoing or continuing as it relates to the will of God revealed. Now, I'm not talking about the doing of miracles. That's not really in view here. God does miracles. Um, God casts out demons. He does this today in ways that we don't see every day. It's not as normal as you would imagine. Um, We don't see, I mean, we don't get YouTube videos all the time of all these things happening like we see it here. Uh, But it's not saying that those things don't happen today. It has to do with what is the purpose for this office of apostle that we read here, these men that we're starting to get to know a bit in the book of Acts. What is their office, their, their special role? How is it different from other roles that Christians may have and have had? And how does the word of God relate to what the apostles are doing here? And what does that mean for us in our view of the word of God, in the view of revelation that God gives. It's an important, these are important practical questions. Again, would demand more time than just a 30-minute episode here, but it gets us started in thinking about a very, very important topic. And I pointed you to it a little bit in our profession of faith, taking from our confession a very well thought out biblical, I think a summarization of the Bible's teaching on this topic of God revealing himself. With that as an introduction, Let's look at the passage first, walk through it together, and then pause to ask, answer some of the questions. I'll start to try to answer some as we go through the text, but then at the end, summarize. And I hope that helps us all better understand the message here. Starting in the passage, we have this link again between the persecution epics, the first one and now the second ones to come. God's growing his church. He's using these former disciples of Jesus. Now they're apostles, which clearly carries more authority. Um, uh, commissioning that is clear from Christ. God gives them the ability to do signs and wonders. We'll answer what 
those may have been, as a way of bolstering who they are in their office and what they say, the message that they were given to proclaim. Verse 12, now many signs and wonders, these are important qualifiers, many signs and wonders were regularly done. So many and regularly are qualifiers for what they're doing, these signs and wonders. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people, how so? By the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now we know from the larger context, the purpose for authenticating the, uh, the apostles doing these things is so that their word would be heeded, so that their testimony would be agreed upon, so that their declaration of the gospel would be seen uh, with, ver- with, with all the veracity it could carry. And so they are able to do the things the prophets in the Old Testament could do. They're able to do the things Jesus Christ was able to do while he was on earth. Now they are doing it by extension of Christ. And this means we must listen to the word that they speak, the word that they preach. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Remember, the portico is where the healing took place of this man who was paralyzed. So this is taking a a view of those who had seen what they were doing. The leader said, don't teach and preach here in the name of Jesus anymore. And they said, we're going to do it anyways, and that's what they're doing in Solomon's portico. And so people are watching. There's a bit of trepidation of those watching, probably scared about the Jewish leaders, don't know what to make of it. That's one scene, and that's what is uh, played out here as the verse, the verse un, uh, unfolds. None of the rest dared join them, verse 13, but the people held them in high esteem. So there's those who don't believe in the message, but they see something is happening here that has credibility. Uh, These signs and these wonders are noticed, and they were held in esteem by the people. Now, quickly on the signs and wonders, I think Derek Thomas comments on this well. Uh, These signs and wonders authenticated the apostles, and he uses a word I never read before, and Thomas does this, even his popular level commentary. They, the signs and wonders, authenticated the apostles as plenty potentiaries of Christ gifted by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the resurrection. Now, I had to look up the word plenipotentiary. A plenipotentiary is a person, especially a diplomat, invested with full power of independent action, that's important, on behalf of their government, typically in a foreign country. So Thomas captures this idea of apostleship with a capital A, the kinds we're reading here, as being people who are invested with full power of independent action on behalf of their government and behalf of their Lord. So they're given a certain independence of action guided by the Holy Spirit that's unusual. It's not the typical for people. And it's for the purpose of founding the church, speaking the Word of God, and they have to do so with 100% integrity, and they have to be verified all the time as exactly official. These signs and wonders accompany the spoken message about the risen Christ. This can't be lost. Um, sometimes people want to get into debates about whether there could be miracles. They can, there can be, but their purpose, that's just a display of God's goodness to his people when he decides to do it. These gifts the apostles are exacting are for the purpose of giving veracity to them as sent messengers of God to represent and give the word of God the way the prophets were in the Old Testament. He's building the church on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles, and what is the record of the apostles and the prophets? The Bible. So it's a buildup to complete that revelation that would become the definer of the church going forward. The church doesn't define the Bible. The Bible defines the church. 
and the apostles and the prophets were specially gifted to build this foundation, to be this foundation with Christ as the chief cornerstone. They're an extension of Christ to reveal God's will in God's work through Christ. Thus, we are built from that point. More will come from this understanding, but we see what the apostles are doing, and we see what they're doing as unusual because many and regularly these miracles are being done, these signs and wonders, and they're done specifically by the hands of the apostles. Now, no doubt, others do miracles in the Scripture, not just the apostles. Stephen does. Stephen's a deacon in the church. Um, But on the norm, on the large, what's seen as the signs and wonders given are from the apostolic ministry for the purpose of establishing credibility so that the Word of God could be declared. None of the rest dared join them, verse 13, as they watched their public ministry, but the people held them in high esteem. But what's the big picture happening? The big picture happening in verse 14. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, first the phrase, added to the Lord. The phrase here means that they were brought into a saving relationship with God through belief in Christ. That's the apostolic message. We've already seen them preach it. So they're preaching the message. They're being apostles confirmed by the signs and the wonders, and people are hearing the gospel. They know it's true because they see these are representatives of Jesus, and they believe. More than ever, that's a lot. There were thousands at the day of Pentecost and thousands after that. And now more than ever before, it says in verse 14, believers were added to the Lord. Added to the Lord. Real pause. I hope you are added to the Lord. How do you know? Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and paid for them, that he did so on the cross, was buried, and was raised again? If you believe in that, you are in the Lord. So I hope maybe there's someone here that has never believed that before, but the Holy Spirit has awoken you to this, and you have now been added to the Lord. Uh, That's what it means to be in the Lord. There's either you're in the Lord or you're not in the Lord. You're only in the Lord if you are resting in Christ. You believe in the apostolic message of Christ dying for the forgiveness of our sins and God raising him from the dead, which proves that he is the worthy sacrifice for us. Then you are in the Lord. If you don't believe that, you are not in the Lord. And in this time frame, as this message is going, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, verse 14, multitudes of both men and women. It was just crossing every known barrier, and it even crosses out in outside of Jerusalem. It doesn't stay there either. And with this knowledge of what was happening, people were coming. It reminds us of the ministry of Jesus. Verse 15, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Now, the word was getting out, as you would imagine. If, if someone gets healed of a lifelong illness or someone was possessed by a demon and now they're freed, word gets out and people that are, that are attacked by these things physically or spiritually, they're going to come to where they know there will be healing. And while they come, um, the Holy Spirit's working, doing these signs and these miracles and bringing people to faith in Christ. It's this, this igniting early in the life of the church to give a critical mass that would become impossible to overcome. It would become so big, so quick, that even the Jewish authorities got behind on it. And it became something that they would reach out to persecute, but God would just use that persecution to grow it bigger. And so this special activity of the Spirit we see happening here is indeed unique. Now, there's been great movements of the Spirit since, but something 
about the intensity of what happens here reminds us of the ministry of Jesus when he defeats the devil in the wilderness and the devil keeps trying to attack him because he sees what's coming. Now he's already defeated the devil at the cross and the devil attacks more because he doesn't want the church to grow more. And guess what happens? It keeps growing because the spirit keeps working and the spirit keeps saving and people come to Christ and it keeps growing and the apostolic message goes on. It's a beautiful picture we see in the book of Acts that has not stopped since, at least in the way God continues to multiply by his spirit and his word. It's an interesting phrase that seems somewhat superstitious to us. They're, they're looking at the apostles, they want to hear the message, um, and they think if they could just get to close enough to where Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Now, this has been abused. I heard this verse growing up about in, uh, basically an evidence for why there's such a thing as relics in the church. Relics meaning some holy person of old had you know, something of their physical effects, sometimes even parts of their body that were still left. And people would come worship those things, thinking the parts of their body themselves or the things they held would give a blessing. That's not the sentiment we have here, even though you could read it that way. Um, it's more like what happened in, when Jesus was ministering. And remember the woman in Matthew 9? Behold, a woman who was suffering from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment, for she said to herself, I only need to touch his garment, I'll be made well. It's a statement of they have such faith and who this person is and what he's saying, that I only got to touch their, I only have to have a shadow. It's the same sentiment that is shared here by Luke describing how much people believed in what the apostles were preaching. And the clarity of what they're preaching is ever present throughout Acts. What we see happening here also, though, in verse 16, is the fulfillment of Acts 1.8. Remember Acts 1.8? Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. Now, verse 16, and the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. They haven't even left Jerusalem yet, and they're coming from the towns. They're going ha- to meet Christ, and then they're going to go back out into their towns. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is an important feature of this special gifting that God's giving these apostles. It doesn't work sometimes and not other times. Um, they're given this gift in a real independent way. There could be healings that happen today where God chooses to heal someone, but it's not because he gives a person a gift to go out healing. It's because God chooses to heal, and he uses different ways in which he may do it. And it's not frequent. It's not something we see all the time. Uh, Some of us have probably never seen it, or maybe we've heard of it from a credible source, but it's not the norm today because the purpose isn't the same. We have the word established now, so the many and regular aren't as important. What we have here, though, are apostles that never fail. They're able to do the thing that God's given them the ability to do. It's not just some, you know, campaign with some guy that's up there, you know, slaying everybody. You know, the the things you see in these abusive forms by some of these charlatan-type evangelists who are just going around putting on a show, and it feels like you're watching professional wrestling, actually, when you see some of it. It's not that. Uh, We're talking here about a case where they were 100% um, able to heal, and it wasn't on the basis of the, the faith of the people receiving the healing necessarily. People were bringing their sick to these people, and they were doing these signs, and the reason was so they listened to the message, that the message they had to teach and preach would be uh, gathered and agreed upon, at least seen as credible, like we see some of those in Solomon's portico who had great regard for them. Now, before we move to the questions that I have posed there for us to think about, And we have, starting our home fellowship groups, a lot of you already this month, these are great topics to be discussing. And I'm sure your home fellowship group leader could answer every one of your questions with regard to this. All right. um, A couple terms, though, I want us to think about. There's the term disciple. 
Disciple in the New Testament means learner, and that's true of any Christian. Anyone who comes to Christ, you're a disciple of Jesus, you're learning. That's true of all Christians. There's another term used to describe Christians called ambassador. It's lesser used and it's more pointed, but essentially we should all be acting as ambassadors for Christ, not just pastors or missionaries. All of us, in some ways, bring the message of Jesus to the world that needs that message. That's the word ambassador. Then there's apostle. An apostle has multiple meanings. There is small a, I'll say it this way for lack of a better way of describing it. There's small a apostle, which means sent ones. Um, these are people that could be church planters, could be missionaries. Um, these are, this is a, a general description of someone's activity on behalf of Christ when we use it in the Christian sense. But there is the other kind of apostle, and some people say there's almost two levels to it itself. With a capital A, the office of apostle. We think of the 12 apostles. But in actuality, we know Paul um, is seen as an apostle. He calls himself the least of the apostles, but an apostle nevertheless. Um, there's something more pointed about that office or role that carrying out this activity we're observing. And we'll see that a little more as we walk through some of these questions. After all, we say on a pretty regular, regular basis when we recite the Nicene Creed, we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. What does that mean? Uh, Catholic here, small c, simply means universal or worldwide. We believe Christians in all parts of the world. We believe in one universal uh, that the Church of Christ touches all points, uh, but, and it's an apostolic church. What does that mean? It means it's based on the witness of the apostles, the one that the apostles gave as the extension of Jesus. It's that faith. Where is that found? We believe that's found in the Scriptures. The Scriptures is ultimately the message of the apostles. What were the signs and wonders in apostolic times first? Well, when we stick to just looking at Luke, who uses the term quite often in, in the book of Acts, he uses it in Luke as well. But in the book of Acts, several times he notes it. Listen to how he uses it, and I think you'll gather what is meant. In Acts 2, a passage we have already been through, awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This switches it, wonders and signs, same Greek words. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So they were doing things that was verifying them as God's representatives. Uh, later, in the book of Acts again, chapter 4, what shall we do with these men? This is the Sanhedrin talking about these guys who just did the healing. For a notable sign has been performed through them. What do they do? They healed the paralyzed man. Later, in the same chapter, the, the Christians are praying for them. For the man whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So, healings are definitely parts of the signs and wonders, signs in particular, it seems. Wonders could be more general, things that are miracles, um, things like opening a prison cell that we see in a little bit. Um, those could be under the term wonders, but typically we're talking about healings first. Uh, later in Acts 4, verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal, this is a prayer to God, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Remember what they pray, this is so important. This is when the believers prayed for Peter and John who had been arrested and they were released, they prayed for God to do what? Please don't let them stop preaching your message. Don't let your message be stopped. And so they were praying for signs and wonders so that the message could keep going forward. So a little bit of the purpose. The signs and wonders were at least healings. They were also for the purpose of letting the message of the Word of God go forward in those days especially. In the text before us, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. 
Acts chapter 6, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Acts chapter 8, the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So they're listening to Philip's message because of the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. So one of the signs and wonders also would be the casting out of demons. Um, this, is, this is another one of the, the accompanying signs. Healings and casting out demons. In Acts 8, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Acts 14, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So the word of his grace authenticated by these signs and wonders. The ones speaking them could be relied upon. They were from God. Acts 15, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. They had not necessarily seen them themselves, but they were telling, listen, guess what's happening all over the place? Or maybe they saw one, and he's saying this isn't the only one. We see this strengthening and establishing of the credibility of the apostolic word because of the signs and wonders. Typically, these signs and wonders meant miraculous healings or the casting out of demons, things that no person could do. Derek Thomas says, signs and wonders were corroborative displays of the apostles' veracity and their testimony to Jesus Christ. What is an apostle in the New Testament? Um, It's true, as I had mentioned, that there are different phrases or different uses for this label, even in the New Testament. So it can be dicey sometimes to figure it out. Um, It means sent one. But in the sense of the apostles doing these signs and these wonders that we're talking about here, it seems clear that there are a few requisites that you have to have to be an apostle in this sense. And the first one, the most obvious one, is they had to be eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus. Um, We are all witnesses to the risen Christ by his word and also by the testimony of his spirit within us. But this is more specifically historical. They were actually there, saw Jesus, saw him die, and saw him rise again. Um, Now, people often bring up, well, how does Paul figure into this? Well, Paul very well could have been there to witness the actual crucifixion of Jesus, and he did meet the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and he himself puts him in a place, the least of the apostles, if you will, because he is in an interesting category on his own. They had to be eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus. Uh, An apostle also received a commission from Christ that was clear. There are many people that witnessed the risen Jesus. They weren't apostles. They were all representatives of Christ, in the sense that we are, but not apostles like we read here so obviously depicted. And what we have also is their ability to perform these signs and wonders. More than the apostles were able to do this in these times, but the apostles primarily, that's why the descriptor in the text says, by the hand of the apostles. So even if guys that were not considered apostles like Stephen were doing them, Clearly, they're, under, they're in the company of the apostles, doing the work with the apostles, endorsed, if you will, by the apostles, Stephen being a great example of this. It's something unique to this apostolic age, we'll call it, while these first eyewitnesses are alive, given these special abilities, and one would understand that when these people died off, there would be something that is not repeatable within their generation or within their time. Lots can be spoken about concerning that, but 20 years after these apostles that we're talking about in primary, the 12 disciples who became apostles. Um, Judas was lost. Matthias was added. Paul was added, obviously, after this. 
But listen to what Paul writes 20 years after this episode in Acts. Paul says to the Ephesians, But now in Christ Jesus, you were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul's repeating the what? The apostolic message of the gospel. It goes on in Ephesians. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the ongoing founding of the church and the building of the church comes from the testimony of the prophets and the apostles. The chief cornerstone is Jesus, meaning he shapes everything they're saying and teaching. And that's what they were experiencing in this time. And even in the time, the Ephesians letter, 55 to 60 AD, this is going on. Now, in this light, what place do these have today? Signs and wonders and apostles. First of all, God does do miracle, miracles today, like heal people and cast out demons. Um, there's no indication in Scripture that he stopped doing these things. Um, the difference seems to be with the office of apostle and its purpose and its regularity and the many times it was done. Uh, I argue that it's not the only evidence that you don't see it regularly done. I think there's scriptural reasons for why it would be done less today. Um, but you know how viral things are. If it was done many and regularly, you would have constant, constant Uh, YouTube videos being posted everywhere, especially on Christian social media, to show us all the ways in which somebody with the gift of healing walked into a hospital in Zimbabwe and released everybody from it. Um, The fact that that has not happened to the degree that we see in the New Testament early times indicates in part that this is something unique that's happening in the book of Acts. So with that, how does it have a place today? Um, Recognizing that these kinds of apostles— these kinds of apostles are no longer active today. Uh, there are no longer apostles in the New Testament sense as they died in that first century with that special gifting, and the Scripture was done as they died. The Scripture was completed. Um, they turn, the, the apostles served a time-specific role. They completed the works of the prophets. The prophets gave testimony to Jesus' coming. Jesus came and confirmed and uh, fulfilled everything the prophets spoke of. The apostles, commissioned specially by Jesus, with authority, with special ability, confirm what Jesus did by putting to word and writing this testimony. What's the testimony of Jesus that was spoken of by the prophets? The prophets and the apostles form the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. Everything must be seen in light of the apostolic message, which we say is the Scriptures. It's not an individual who still has an office of ongoing revelation. It's the Scriptures The Scriptures are the testimony to the apostles' teaching who is Christ. So, the authority that the church has only comes as the Scripture describes it. So, my authority as a pastor is only insofar as I am in line with Scripture. I must be in line with the apostolic faith. I don't define the apostolic faith. You should listen to what's said here or among your leaders as it relates to its accuracy with the Word of God, because the Word of God is that final word that God gives us that allows us to interpret all of life and godliness through it. It's not all there is to know about God, but it's everything we need to know about God, and it was finally confirmed by the apostles under their ministry, and that should give us great encouragement when we think of what we have in our scriptures before us. 
it's interesting that the earliest of the church fathers who came right after the apostles, there's one such uh, of many, Clement is one of them, um, he was a contemporary with John the apostle. And Clement wrote in a way that describes the apostolic office as no longer being in effect. Even at 150 AD, he's already writing like this. He writes to the Corinthians, the apostles have preached the gospel to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has done so from God. Christ, therefore, was sent forth by God and the apostles by Christ. Both these appointments, then, were made in an orderly way according to the will of God, having therefore received their orders and being fully assured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and established in the word of God with full assurance of the Holy Ghost. They went forth proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand, and thus preaching through countries and cities, they appointed uh, the first fruits of their labors, having first proved them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons of those who would afterward believe. Clement notices that the apostles' activity, as they were preaching the message of the gospel, they were also installing elders, bishops, overseers. These are words that are used synonymously in the New Testament, a whole other topic. Uh, but Presbyterian comes from presbyter, which is elder. And the apostles, their task was to appoint other elders. It doesn't say the apostles appointed apostles. The apostles' task was to give the word of God and establish the leadership in the churches in that first century. And Clement recognizes that's what they did. That's a fruit of their apostolic labor. Um, interestingly, Wayne Grudem, who takes a different position than I would on what are called the ongoing gifts of the Spirit, um, he does say this that's helpful to what I'm laying out. Grudem writes, It is noteworthy that no major leader in the history of the church, not Athanasius, Augustine, or Luther, or Calvin, or Wesley, or Whitfield, has taken to himself the title apostle, or let himself be called an apostle. If any in modern times want to take the title of apostle to themselves, Grudem says, this immediately raises a suspicion that they may be motivated by inappropriate pride and desires for self-exaltation, along with excessive ambition and a desire for much more authority in the church than any one person should rightly have. Um, The idea of presbyters is a plurality of leadership under the authority of the word of God, which is the apostolic word. The prophets forecasted Jesus. Jesus came. The apostles carried out Christ's commission by pointing back to himself and giving witnesses to his ministry and work. The scriptures were completed under the watchful eyes of the apostles. The scriptures or potential for scripture to be written ended with the death of the last apostle. You can't have more revelation from God in this sense than you get through the apostolic ministry. I don't mean that God doesn't move his children uh, to discern his will. The Holy Spirit gives you um, guidance and aid. I don't mean that, that God works that way dynamically. But instruction for the church, revelation about God's will that the church must follow, that ceased with the apostles dying. In fact, that's why I think our confession captures it as good as any human confession has ever done, what we read at the very beginning. It pleased the Lord at sundry times and in divers' manners to reveal himself and to declare that, that his will unto his church. In other words, we couldn't know God unless he revealed himself, so he chose to do so. And the confession captures what the Bible teaches about this. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit these the same wholly underwriting, the message of the prophets and the apostles, the revelation. He chose to commit those to writing which makes the Holy Scripture 
to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. The office of apostle should give Christians great confidence in the Scriptures. I'll sometimes hear Christians argue uh, in favor of the same level of signs and wonders being done. You know, if we only had those, then the church would grow. But, but listen for a, so- a second. If you were living in the first century and you saw one of those signs and wonders, they would have been amazing. You would have told everyone you know. But you only saw a couple of them. You and I, we have the Scriptures. And it records all the ones God wants to know, us about, to know about and says there are many more that we're, we're not even recording here. We have all the witness we possibly need. We have the Scripture showing us the signs and wonders he's done. We believe them. What are the purpose of the signs and wonders? That we believe in the word that's spoken. Well, we know these things happen. We have witnesses that it happened. We know because the Spirit of God is confirmed in our hearts it's true. This witness of the Scripture is true. So what does the Scripture say? It says that we must believe on Christ to be saved in its simplest form. So we have more than they had. We have the finished word. We're no less filled with the Spirit, or there's no less ministry of the Spirit. It's just now we have it working through the Word in the means of God's grace He's given His church, which are dynamic. If the Word is not dynamic to you, you're either not saved or you're not really reading it. All people, people will say to me, uh, the Bible, you're not reading it then, or you don't believe, or you're harboring a sin and God's showing you that by making it hard to read the Word, you must repent of that sin. And now I'm sounding like the Apostle R.L. Mitchell. But please hear what I'm saying. We are no less dynamic because we have the Scripture finished. We are not uh, avoiding the Holy Spirit in our discussion. We are just acknowledging how God has organized this, and he's given us the means of grace to put ourselves under and involved and engaged in, and that's how the Spirit of God dynamically adds to his number. It's a blessed thing, and it's an assuring thing. The Scripture is the record of God's miraculous founding of the church, among other things. This is a book of signs and wonders that we have, and no wonder is more wonderful than the gospel of Christ, which is why those authenticating signs and wonders were done in the first place, to make us listen and see and know it's true, this word of the gospel. Christ will build his church against all demonic and human opposition. And this word will remind us when the persecution comes to us that this word is God's word and it will not change. And people may tell us not to believe it or persecute us for believing it, but we should know It's God's supernatural word. And the grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but the word of our God, it'll stand forever. And it doesn't matter what comes up against us, we can know it's true. And we can bear up under whatever comes against us and stick with what is eternal truth and not cave to temporal man. In verse 14, And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we are grateful for your revelation to us, your word. We are grateful for how you have orchestrated these things over time. I pray that you would compel us to study your word all the more fervently, all the more, with all the more excitement, um, being ready to see what it is that you have for us in your word. And I pray that you'd shape our lives according to this revelation. Lord, so much of what we read simply lifts our heads heavenward and gives us a sense of praise for you. And that's enough. If that's what we read, we just are raised to a level of greater worship of you, O Lord, than your word's doing its work. But Lord, we know that you don't leave us just there. You give us grace to obey your commands, uh, to be ambassadors for you, to relay with others this faith you have given, to lay hold of Jesus Christ, the one who has saved us from our sins. 
And Lord, we long to have said also that many, many believed. Many believed. Men and women, children, people we know and love. Lord, we look forward to seeing you do this work, and you'll do it the way you always have, through the testimony of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.